They're the hope of the future. You two really must have a lot of fun together. Yeah, these little rascals really make life worth living. But Ben and Flo have a problem. Are you absolutely sure there's no hope? Oh, none whatsoever. Florence, why can't we adopt? <gasps> okay, let's get a kid. Okay, you want a little baby? Well, old babies are little. It's no problem there. Just this morning, I came upon a seven-year-old. <laughs> Ah, smartest attack. Ah! A little rambunctious. <laughs> but weren't we all at that age? <laughs> I took that on as pressure. I took that on as I got to do this right. And this is what it's going to have to look like. Or, you know, I, I just took that hook and sinker and tried to live that out. And in my own... I don't know if you call it selfishness or just overwhelmness of that time of trying to come in uh, to be Sasha's mom. That, I mean, it's probably been the most difficult thing I've done in my life to try to connect with a young child who's had more trauma than most people experience ever in their life and who just lost their second mom. And now here I come in as a third. I love what you two are doing with this house, but what are you gonna do with five bedrooms? You guys are obviously never having kids. What was that look? I did not do a look. You're doing a look right now. There's no look. Have a good fight, guys. There's so many kids in foster care, and they're having an orientation. Ellie, people who take in foster kids are really special. The kind of people who volunteer when it's not even a holiday. We don't even volunteer on a holiday. Over a half million children are currently in foster care. Look at the big kids. Everybody's avoiding them. I'm gonna go and say hi. But they're teenagers, okay? They use drugs and they watch people playing video games on YouTube. We're not equipped for any of that. Hi! Just FYI, we can all hear you. And now you can hear me. What you're hearing is the Anagram Journey podcast with the Anagram Godmother, Suzanne Stabile. My name is Joel, and today's guest is Anagram 2, Jelana Goble, author of A Love Stretched Life, married to Anagram 5 Luke and five humans call her mom. We're talking a lot today, as you can probably already tell, about foster care, adoption and family, and of course, the Enneagram. Quick plug before we get to our conversation, November 11th and 12th, it's the final stop of the Enneagram journey toward wholeness tour. If you can be in Kansas City, Missouri with us, then you need to be. I'm telling you right now, you give that as an early Christmas present, they're not gonna be upset with you. Kansas City, Missouri, November 11th and 12th. Get your tickets today at lifeinthetrinityministry.com. November 11th, November 12th, Kansas City, Missouri. The Enneagram Journey podcast is produced by Life and the Trinity Ministry. The podcast is made possible by the support and contributions of individuals, groups, and institutions who also believe in a community encouraging self-knowledge, fostering spiritual maturity, and the values of Micah 6.8. You can support LTM and the Anagram Journey podcast by donating at the link in the show notes at theanagramjourney.com and at lifeinthetrinityministry.com. And now it's time to meet the author of A Love Stretched Life, Jelana Goble. Jelana, I am fascinated by the story of you, and I I can't do anything succinctly, but I could never tell your story the way you can. Uh, in a smaller space than your story probably deserves to be heard. So just get us from, I don't know, 20 to now. (laughs) The last 25 years. Yeah, just just throw in (laughs) a little stuff. I guess, you know, a succinct overview would be that um, my life has been profoundly changed in proximity to those um, different from me. And, um, the primary way that this has impacted my life is through the transformational lens of foster care and then adoption, and then folding in my 13 year old's first mom, his biological mom into our family that started Suzanne back in the late nineties when I was working at a Guatemalan orphanage. Um, and, 
Oh, really? Like was the first time I was kind of exposed and way in over my head and exposed to the reality that sometimes just offering our human presence is like what we have to give when there's nothing that can be done to fix it. When it seems like scarcity abounds in terms of what's needing needed in the situation. That was really a kind of my first um, encounter with that level of suffering. My husband actually joined me in Guatemala for a while, and we were on the plane back to the United States when I turned to him and rather naively asked, where are the vulnerable children here? Having no idea that that would kind of become um, a guiding, (laughs) that the answer would would really transformationally impact my life. Um, The answer was foster care. And growing up, to my knowledge, I didn't know anyone that was in foster care. I didn't know anyone um, that had done foster parenting. So it was, I knew kind of the hazy concept of foster care, Suzanne, but I didn't really know. And my husband, Luke, and I very quickly learned that there is a vast difference between taking notes and a crisp little journal about trauma and kids from hard places, and then the lived reality. And that lived reality kind of all came crashing down within about the first 24 hours. Fast forward, there are now five children who call me mom, three of whom have come to me via the foster care system. Um, We've reconnected with our very first child in foster care. I write about that in A Love Stretch Life. We have kind of uh, folded in uh, in this kind of untraditional blended family with our a 13 year old's birth mom. I want to be very clear. Like I am, we are not co-parenting, but we have, we have embarked on a journey where we are doing life together. Um, and we now have the privilege of speaking monthly to state caseworkers, kind of sharing our unlikely story of collaboration, which is something that if you had pulled Jennifer or I along the way, we would have said no way because we have experienced every emotion under the sun, both within our, (laughs) within our, inside ourselves and and toward one another. Um, And then lastly, uh, I'm profoundly impacted by raising a child who has a profound yet invisible brain-based disability called fetal alcohol syndrome. We were asked to pick up a baby from the hospital for the weekend, barely talk to my husband, Luke, about it, because you can do anything for 48 hours. You know, we, our, our intent was to re, reunify him with a relative. And when that didn't happen, we joyfully folded him into our forever family. And a few years after his adoption was kind of when all, uh, when we discovered that um, Charlie has a brain that works uh, very differently. He's smart. His essence is like loving and creative, but that's oftentimes covered up by a very explosive prickly porcupine exterior. And our family is just profoundly on a different path, you know, needing to pitch every traditional parenting tool that we've used with our other children, even our other child that's come from a traumatic background, but yet they're still neurotypical and we're working with a neurodivergent child. And that has profoundly influenced my lens on my faith, the way I see the world and the way I just realize again, that we are only seeing a sliver of the story that I don't know as much as I thought I knew before raising Charlie about what I was seeing and what it meant. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's my family in a nutshell. Okay. With or without names, will you introduce the children and what age they are and, and where they sit in relationship to you and Luke and to one another. I would love to, and I have permission to share everybody's names. Great. So with their permission, Great. Um, so Luke and I have been married for 22 years. Uh, our oldest who I refer to as the son of my heart is named Royal. He's not legally adopted by us, but uh, we reconnected with him um, after 13 years apart. He was our very first child in foster care. He and his girlfriend and their child actually traveled via Amtrak for 71 hours to get from Buffalo, New York to Portland, Oregon. And they, we had the privilege of, of, you know, living near him in close proximity for a year. They're back in Buffalo. Now that's where my husband's from. We go back every summer. We, I talk to him weekly. We have two biological girls who are 18 and 15. Um, And then we have two boys who are not related to one another um, that we first fostered really with no intention of adopting. But when that came on the table, we said yes. And so those are the four that are under our roof right now. So from ranging in age from 10 to 25. Yeah. 
Okay, I, I want to introduce you now as a two, and I I have some very, uh, I don't know, I, you know, because I'm a two, who knows what these statements really mean. If you didn't know I was a two, would you have been able to peg me from a mile away reading A Love Stretch Life as a two? Half a mile. <laughs> I figured. Do you relate more to Suzanne as a two or because, uh, help me clean up this question. There, You are mm-hmm. the extrovert of extroverts. Mm-hmm. You're the twoest of twos, mm-hmm. et cetera. Mm-hmm. And some twos don't relate to that. Yep. And that's the question that I have. Oh, Joel, I completely relate to that. I'm a very social, pretty stereotypical two. Yep. Yeah. One of the things that you provided in the info was when you were kind of figuring out your Enneagram number that you talked about, you know, two, but you thought for a second, possibly a three. And then you said, but the shadow side of pride for two nailed it home. Can you talk to that? Absolutely, Joel. I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, that, that really, that, the, the not wanting to ask for help, always wanting to be the helper. What can I do for you? Being very outwardly focused almost as a way to um, not consciously, but like avoid what I'm feeling. I don't want to present as having needs. I just want to present as being helpful. And, and honestly, it's not that I'm trying to present to to flash a certain image. It's honest. It feels so genuine Mm -hmm. that until I stop and until I'm introspective, and that's part of why the discipline of writing has been such a gift for me because I am so used to kind of pinging off. And I feel like I can palpably feel others emotions that when it's just me sitting at my kitchen table with my computer screen, and there's nobody to be attentive to, Uh, that's where I feel like, you know, it invites me to be introspective and to stop that kind of, how are you doing? What what can I do for you? How are you feeling? Let me come alongside, Mm -hmm. you know, those type of things. So it's certainly pride. And I feel like, gosh, in my particular journey, foster care and adoption has given me a lot of, of invitations to say, I need help. I can't do this. I feel like I'm drowning. And I think those might be things that are hard for any number to utter, but it has certainly been a big part of me growing up in some ways, just being able to, to, to just honestly ask for help and to recognize when my shadow of pride is getting in my own way. What's Luke's Enneagram number? Oh, he's a five. Can can (laughs) y'all Are you you suddenly speechless? (laughs) I mean, I, would, I wasn't going to guess five. The first time we you went to Oregon, to Portland, and then we had that Sunday afterwards. And we, I was there, Joel. Yeah. I was there in the basement of that church. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were all kind of, our chairs were all um, lined up in a row, mm-hmm. and Suzanne was up in front of us. And then I believe I asked a question, and she got quiet, and and her Suzanne wisdom said, we need to circle up our chairs. And then she started addressing me. She asked Luke, you know, what number he was as a five. And she actually asked the room, how many other twos in this room are married to fives? And there were quite a few hands. That's why it's coming back up for me. And I got, yeah, yeah. You know, you're, you're, it's amazing with all the places and people you see, but yes, that was my question. And I was very teary, um, just with, exploring in that, in that safe space that was created with other foster and adoptive families, what it is like to, um, engage hard things, um, to welcome in, to raise your hand and welcome in, um, stories that may be difficult, extra difficult. Mm -hmm. All of life is difficult. We all deal with difficult things, of course. Um, but it is, it, it honestly has, has, been profoundly helpful to me in my marriage to recognize that we are coming from profoundly different lenses that being, you know, honestly, Joel, uh, the fact that Luke's doing repressed, repressed, he told me once that his idea of a perfect day would be sitting alone in a room with nobody talking to him. So all he could do is think, and honestly, that would be my personal version of hell Mm -hmm. like that. And, um, and for Luke, I'm so, I'm so grateful because I'm thinking repressed as a two. And I feel like without his, without his wisdom, without his measured energy approach, we would probably have more children in our home than I could adequately care for, honestly. And so I feel like it, it's been 
to say a godsend sounds like cliche, but it has been so helpful for us to recognize the lens um, that we bring to our family um, and the the different ways, you know, we get energy. One of the things that I've thought about a lot since that time when we were in Portland and they ended up being so many twos and fives, which blew me away. But one of the things I've thought about since then, and I think seems to be true for you, is that if you were married to or partnered with another feeling number, there would not be boundaries. Yes. It's very necessary for twos Mm -hmm. to have a very well-boundaried person to balance them if you're going to focus on children who have needs and who are marginalized. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the stories that didn't actually make a love stretch life, but I, I write in a chapter about how bedraggled I was. We were in this intense season with, you know, welcoming our welcoming in extra children and all of these things that were unexpected. And one of the stories that didn't make the book, but I feel like is relevant to this conversation is that after an exhausting day with five children underneath the roof of our home, trying to return Jennifer's youngest son to her so that she would get him back and just feeling exhausted. I got a call at one o'clock in the morning uh, from this woman. She always sounds kind of like Delilah, the radio host, you know, the people <laughs> that call from the, from the hotline because they're calling and they're like, hi, I'm calling here. And I have, you know, and, and it's, it's heartbreaking because in the world of foster care, and they're not doing this to be manipulative, but this is really true. And I, I won't say the actual names, but it, the conversations went something like this. Hi, Jelana, this is so-and-so from child welfare. I'm calling you because we just found Jonathan and Samantha age five and seven riding around the TriMet with, with their severely intoxicated father. The police have stopped the bus. They're in the back of the car. We need a place to take them just for the night. Would you be open to opening up your home just for the night? They don't even need beds. Sleeping bags on the floor is fine. But the police are literally waiting for an address of where to take these children. Now, hours before this phone call, I had been teary with Luke saying how exhausted I was. But what was my immediate response to that phone call? I just said, I, you know, sat straight up in bed and I kind of, you know, tapped Luke and I told him, I said, this is the situation. Can we say yes? And he's like, we, we can't say yes. We can't say yes. And honestly, that brought up so much anger for me. And my literal response to him was, well, why did we buy a big house then if we're not going to use it? I mean, I just look at myself and I'm like, is that not classic too? And, but I think for me, I just felt like it's just one more need. It's just for the night. Like I can do it. Not recognizing the exponential buildup of saying all these seemingly small yeses that could break us when I was already on the verge. And Luke was very wise. He said, have her call everyone on the list. And if they still can't find someone, she may call us back. And, you know, professionally working with child welfare, I am darn well aware that there are not a lot of families on that list. And so I think that also drove that very two response of like, of course you can bring them here. And yet, I mean, back to what I was sharing before, I'm so grateful for his like measured response, even in the midst of what seems to me a very urgent dire, of course, we can do this one small thing for Jonathan and Samantha who literally need a place to go right now. And so I think those types of situations, um, have come up in various forms over the years. And I have learned that my first response of kind of defensiveness of like, well, is not the right response, but that, you know, that that's kind of showing my true colors right there of how, what my natural response is. And it feels so altruistic. And I think people are so easy to to point out like, wow, look what you're doing. Uh Mm -hmm. I think what twos really want is to be loved. But I think we start in childhood settling for appreciation. Hmm. And then I think appreciation becomes the thing that fuels us to keep going, to do another thing and another thing and another thing. And, you know, there's a lot of appreciation for somebody who will take two kids in the middle of the night when they already have more than they can handle. Yeah. That scenario that you just brought up, just seems like an impossible scenario. I don't, I think you maybe said two years ago, 
But when you have a household full of kids that you're responsible for 24 seven, uh, or however responsible for, you've got a partner that you're doing life with. You've got, I don't know, society saying Jesus would say, you pick up these That's kids. Right. That's right. Uh, yeah. You ask, you absolutely open the door. Like mm -hmm. there'd be people, people listening to this podcast that mm -hmm. Jesus would have opened the door for them. My question for the two of you, mostly in my world is just to listen to Whitney, <laughs> but <laughs> when to, when to say yes, when to say no, mm -hmm. when to say no, however this, when to say yes, if this discernment around all of that just seems so, so hard. I think part of it has to do with, I was just going to say, you, you would be in the same boat because you have a heart for children. So your answer would be yes. Yeah. I mean, like, in a heartbeat, it yeah. would be yes. And you're a seven, not a two. And I think what happens for us is that we are fueled by people needing us. So we come exhausted to the table and saying, I'm not doing another thing. I can't. And then... The, the thing presents itself. And like Jelana said, it's just one more thing. What, what difference is one more going to make? And I believe it's true for me. We'll see if it's true for you. That we got this far feeling and doing and feeling and doing and feeling and doing. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that we're responding with our own feelings when there are policemen who have two children who are waiting for a place to sleep. Or if we aren't even responding to our feelings, but we're feeling their feelings and making a decision based on that. That's exactly right. And all of that includes zero thinking. Mm -hmm. Zero thinking. Mine includes zero feeling for Whitney and the people in my house. That's right. Mm -hmm. yep. It's thinking. It's, we can totally do it. I, we, we got this, you know, yep. it's thinking, mm -hmm. but no feeling for my people. Which ultimately is a difference in us being totally relationship people and sevens being relationship people with all relationships, right? So, Juliana, one of the reasons the question that defines my day. Not her name. Oh, oh I'm sorry. Man, I, I, I'm all whipped up because of the ways we're the same. So... <laughs> One she of the, called. She called Mike Alexander recently. Yeah. Alexander Hamilton. You know, I. So, I'm I'm doing the best I can. And, and, the, and the world will never know. That's well, they will if you keep telling them. <laughs> so one of the reasons, Jelana, that my question has become, mm -hmm. "What is mine to do?" Mm -hmm. is because I've been in your shoes in with different circumstances than yours, but in those shoes that you were in that night. Yeah. So many times, and I didn't stop and say, is this mine to do? Yes. Because I was just feeling and doing and no thinking. It's astonishing how much that gets me into. And I'm married to a nine. Mm -hmm. So what's happening at our house is we're both other referenced. Mm -hmm. And so when one of us is strong and says we can't do more, the other one says, ah, we can do this, and then we're in it. Mm -hmm. Do you think you're brave? I don't think I'm brave. I, I, I think that line of bravery is a, is a, is a watery line in my opinion. And I think, I mean, if bravery is saying yes to the unknown and just continuing to put one foot in front of the other, I think we all have invitations to be brave, but I don't think there's anything inherently more brave about foster or adoptive parenting. I think for twos, we have to watch it because people are going to throw the hero word at us um, all the time. And that's not true. Like the, the, what's true is that we are ordinary people saying an ordinary yes. And then just trying to faithfully walk out that yes, wherever it will go. And it's an, un, it's saying yes, oftentimes raising your hand to say yes to, um, kids and situations where we don't always have the full story and it's just a continual unfolding. So it's almost like a choose your own adventure. Only you don't get to be in the driver's seat, right? You're kind of, you're kind of hanging onto the coattails and like our response of trying to show up and trying to, um, exhibit courage, I think is not just what heroes possess, 
I, um, I think it's, it's a, it's a definition or an invitation to all of us. So no, I wouldn't say I'm especially brave. I have a weird question and it's a set of question. Do you think that abnormal circumstances require abnormal responses? The reason that I ask when you ask, are you brave? And you responded, I don't know when this will air, but it's hot on my mind. We've talked with Mike Alexander and he talked about police officers being normal people in abnormal situations, responding abnormally, and then that becoming normal. Yes, and it almost seems like definition. that's a parallel to what y'all, to this circumstance. Mm-hmm. And that's why I ask. Yeah, I think you're brave. And I'll tell you why. And, and, and I think, uh, I, you know, I, I don't know. I think most people are heroes at some point in their life. I don't know exactly what that word means, except that I want my grandchildren to have heroes. And I would certainly be happy if you were one of them. So what I want to say in terms of bravery is you even kind of leaned into it. You sign up for the unknown. And now you're doing it with the biological mother of one of the children. Mm-hmm. You, you when, when it comes to unknown, you seem to respond with, well, yeah, I'll, I'll try that. I, it's not going to be pretty, but I think we can do that. I'll, I'm, I'm going to go for that. And I thought back to us being in that room in Portland and me sitting there listening to all those stories. And we had some of the adult children from some of the families that were represented in the room. And they also were talking about their lives among these other children who became their family. And I kind of thought everybody in the room was brave at that Mm -hmm. point. And I don't use that word much. So just so you know, I've never asked that question to anybody. And it's not a word that I throw around. I believe that we, I'm trying to lean into the reality that I know about the need for fostering. Mm -hmm. I think that your work and your book and your story, along with others who are putting their fostering experiences into the world Mm -hmm. will actually ultimately allow people to hear their inner voice of whether or not that's theirs to do. Mm -hmm. I think most people are in the place you described at first about things being kind of fuzzy about fostering, but you didn't really know much. And I think people think they know and they don't know. Absolutely. And yeah. And I want to be clear, you know, like the, when, when somebody is going the path of straight adoption uh, versus foster care, there can be some overlapping um, complexities to engage. And also it is a profoundly different start to know that the goal of foster care is to take welcome in love. And if things go according to plan return. Um, so while there are some overlaps, I do feel like when we look at the, the nine numbers and we look at the unique wirings, there are some unique opportunities and some unique trappings when it comes to um, foster care. I want to be honest, my brother was adopted domestically as an infant, but my experience as an adoptive parent has come through foster care where the goal was to reunite my sons with their birth moms. And when that plan A didn't work out, it tipped to plan B, you know, do I experience a lot of common denominators that a lot of adoptive, you know, right from the gate families do? Absolutely. But it is a unique path in getting there. Have you and Luke fostered children that are not living under your roof and not part of your family? We have, we have, um, you know, honestly, uh, we, I, when I say we fostered for nearly 20 years, I want to be clear that that's not 20 years of a revolving door. I mean, that's 20 years of, of being a certified foster parent. We are not anymore with the, with the extraordinary needs of our youngest. Um, but even in that, you know, we, we have had the chance to welcome in, um, probably a dozen children over the years, but, but for shorter term, not for years and years and years. In one of the churches that we serve, Joe, you know, as a United Methodist pastor, we had uh, a woman who fostered newborns Mm -hmm. and just kept them, you know, like from the hospital 
until they had a more permanent foster placement for them. And I, I was just astonished by somebody's ability to do that, to do that. And I, mm-hmm. I, 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 I'm hoping that one of the things that will come from our time with you is people who are our audience will hear this and think, you know, I might could do that. I might, I might, I might be cut out to do that. Our family might could do that. Yeah. I can't remember the word you used when you came back from Guatemala to describe the children when you asked Luke kind of offhandedly, I wonder where who's, the who's vulnerable. vulnerable children are. That That's a big word right there. And I, 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 wish, I wish we could all somehow wonder where the vulnerable children are. Mm-hmm. And I think the answer to that, is going to be, well, but while the answer might be in these specific places, I think what is ours to do is going to be different based on our capacity, based on our real life backdrop, based on our number, based on what's going on underneath the roof of our home. Um, so I think that while I certainly do believe Suzanne, that, you know, more people need to be fostering just because there's a crisis shortage across the nation it does not necessarily mean that though we need more that everyone is to to step into this box called absolutely. parenting. I absolutely get that. Yeah. That leads me to back down memory lane. I don't even know if the podcast had started then, but let's say it had. Uh, we weren't recording or anything. Y'all correct me. All those fives in the room, and there were a lot of questions. And a lot, like it was, and it was really, really fantastic just to be a fly on the wall. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that you did that I'm going to ask you to recreate right here. And if you can't, I'll edit out this question, but it was, what are some of the questions for each Enneagram number that mm-hmm. they need to ask themselves before they start this, this journey of a foster care and adoption? Because that was one of the things that some of the five said, I had no clue this or I think there was a nine. This sounds like very low hanging fruit, but I believe this happened. And I was like, you know, my, my husband wanted to do it. And so, okay. And I smirched. With and that. then as it, as they were getting into the process and as kids were coming to their homes for both foster care and adoption, which I'm so glad you pointed out the difference there that there's different questions that they just had not asked themselves based on their own personality. You know, it was mm-hmm. my community said that we should, do this. The billboard yeah. on the side of the road said that we yeah. need people to adopt. My church said, come on, who wants to do it? And we did it without yeah. asking ourselves the personal questions. Mm-hmm. You think you can uh, whip around the nine? I know you hate doing that. I think I might can. Can you help me? I would love to. Yeah. I kind of just jotted down some, some notes this morning about what some of the opportunities and what some of the pitfalls are with each number as yeah. we think about Foster parenting. Okay. Well, you lead and I'll add to what you have to say. Oh, Suzanne, that's an honor. Okay. So with ones, I feel like ones make the world a better place. And also the whole idea of I am right. um, And that there's a certain way to do things is going to be a real hang up for ones when you enter into a pretty overwhelmed, dysfunctional, at least state system, which is where I'm coming from, where things are real funky from the beginning and everything is out of order. In Oregon, there's a high likelihood that you might have a child placed with you before you even take your first training class. Let's, I mean, that's a whole nother topic about how that sets families up for burnout, but um, it's not linear is my, is my point. And I think the whole idea of doing something right in terms of like, this is the right way to parent. This is how I parented my other kids. It's going to be right. Um, you know, we have to, we have to, to pivot um, and recognize that the way we've done things before might not be the way that's the right way, both in the system linearly and also how we engage with what's right in our parenting. The thing I would add to that too, is that I think ones um, are, are longing to hear and believe that they're good. Mm. And it could be a real uh, temptation. If I do this, I'm good. Mm. And people are going to know I'm good. One of the things I completely forgot about, you know, you brought up the relationship with the state. And now I'm remembering people, people were talking about the relationship with their foster care worker or the individual who you got to work with. That's not your Enneagram number and all these different, it's not just you and the kid, you and your family, you and your spouse, it's the state, the worker, this person, that person. 
You're absolutely right, Joel. In foster care, a child in foster care comes with an entourage of professionals that you're engaging with. So while it might be one child, that child comes with an attorney and a therapist and a caseworker and the foster parent has a certifier who comes out and makes sure they're home safe. There's probably easily seven or eight people that are attached to that one child that we are engaging with. That's right. You, um, we, I want you to move on to twos, but I want to ask you a question first. One of the stories is that you all took a six month old who had already had how many placements? Four. Four. That's our now 13 year old son. I, that, sorry, that just, I found to be very difficult to -hmm. think about. And I, I think people think about a six month old as I've got this without thinking about what four placements does to a a six month old, you know, it's just a, so it's such a big story. That's what this is. It's a very big story. All right, let's go to twos because I want to make sure, you know, everybody's going to want to hear their number. People are going to be pissed. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, we got to get them all done. Okay. Um, I just, I think, you know, twos with the kind of, I am helpful and we hear about the need, like we've already talked about. And I think twos have to remember that, that, you know, we're, we're focusing here on relationship over rescue. I learned that within 24 hours of my very first, um, parenting experience. And I think for twos, there are a lot of opportunities to say like, look what I've done for you. And I think for people in a really unhealthy spot, they might be tempted to say, I'm giving you this nice house in the backyard and we go different places and da, 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 expecting that kids will be grateful when kids and when we should never expect a child to grovel and trip over themselves in thankfulness over the basics of felt safety. Right. And so I think it can be all, you know, to us twos can be very altruistic until somebody shoves back in our face that not only are they not grateful, but maybe F you on top of that. And then the, all of that can come crumbling down mm-hmm. for us. And so I think, you know, foster care, foster adoptive parenting from foster care, it's like swimming in a pool of needs. And so I feel like as you, you know, you better, you, you can't just constantly be like helping to keep others floating because we'll, we'll drown. And so I know, you know, we're wanting to experience love and there's a lot of opportunities for that in foster care. Um, there's kind of some pitfalls too, with kind of thinking that perhaps we're giving love to a child that's never been shown love before. And in some cases, in some very traumatic, neglectful, abusive situations, that may be true. And we also have to hold the tension that very well may be true that there's a single parent to this child who's suffering in the pit of addiction right now. And they're in acute place of struggle and there's nobody that they love more than their child. And so I think foster care invites us to just hold that tension. And so I think for twos with our, you know, desire and long longing to be loved um, and meeting the needs of others, those are some things that come to mind. Yeah, it requires a lot of grace, doesn't it? Grace for everybody, everybody. Absolutely. And not much judgment. Not, that's tricky. It's very tricky. It's very tricky. Um, okay. Threes. You know, I think threes, let's just, uh, th- let's just be real. So it, with the idea of I am, I am successful and kind of fearing failure, perhaps we are entering foster parenting. There's not a ton of overt success stories. I think we all love the story where the protagonist like overcomes and there's the hurdle and we all like root for them and all the things. And, and I celebrate each and every time I see that. And I do see that. I want to be very clear that this is an all doom and gloom. And yet in situations where kids are coming out of um, situations where they've witnessed domestic violence, incarceration of a parent, untreated mental illness, substance abuse, many times, all of those, um, there's, there's a lot to, there's a lot to overcome. And so I think for threes, we have to be really mindful that there's no perfect productive formula. And especially in a faith context, Suzanne, I feel very leery because I've seen it many times over the last 20 years of people wanting to believe, because we want this to be true, that input equals output Mm -hmm. and that the right formula of love, discipline, success, and maybe we sprinkle in a little bit of Jesus and that's going to equal a clean slate for this child. And so 
I think we have to be aware that again, it's relationship and relationships are not efficient. So oftentimes when we're walking with kids from hard places, it's three steps forward and six steps back. Yeah, I, I think there is too uh, an idea of what success would look like in threes. And then I think often they miss successful moments, which is all we have. Any of us is a moment that's successful, right? The next one could be not, not so much. Mm-hmm. But I also think the invitation I know in with my Charlie, who's 10, I feel like part of my invitation in having the exhausting privilege of parenting him is that I now am able to not only see, but celebrate things that previously with any of my other three neurotypical children, Suzanne, I would have mistaken for just low level behavioral expectations. And now that's something that not only I see and celebrate, you didn't swear on the bus high five, you know, (laughs) you didn't yank the dog's tail. Like that's awesome. You know, uh, you didn't get into a fight. Amazing. And so these are just things that before I would have never even thought to even say to my children because it was what they do, you know, is, um, are, are there opportunities when fostering to be educated and trained about things like fetal alcohol syndrome? Like, is that an option for you or do you just do, did you just do all that on your own? You know, obviously I can't speak to, to all the trainings. Um, but for the most part, trainings across the nation are pretty inadequate when it comes to education around in utero, um, alcohol exposure. Oftentimes it's kind of lumped into drugs and alcohol together. And I think, you know, oftentimes the focus of caseworkers is to ask about, you know, kind of the, the, the big name, like illegal drugs that, that, uh, kids might be exposed to in utero or outside of it, but we don't ask about the thing that you can walk into Seven Eleven and buy for $5. Right. And, yep. and that actually has, um, there's a lot of data that talks about that having a profound impact on the brain, even more than some of these like bigger illegal substances. And so I think the education around that was something that I needed to hold my own spyglass up to, and basically go to a team of professionals and, and in the most assertive yet respectful way, say, prove to me, my son doesn't have this, but if I were waiting for a professional to come to me, I would still be waiting. And I think what's important to recognize is that in the world of child welfare, it's based on attachment theory. Mm -hmm. So the notion is give it time, give it time, you know, give it time to, for that child to kind of settle in. But if I'm looking at my lens, if I'm looking at the lens through, give it time with my child that I've raised for 10 years, since he was 48 hours old, I would be banging my own head against the wall because it's not the right lens. And so we have to have the right lens to guide our interpretation. My child has brain damage. He has brain damage. So I need to walk that tension of calling him to his highest level of, of, of capability while making a ton of accommodations for him. Sure. Sure. All right. How about fours? You know, I heard you say on a previous podcast, Suzanne, so I'm going to be quoting you when you said that fours bear witness to pain without having to fix it. And I, I just, I love that. I know that fours are deep feelers. I know that they strive to make the world a beautiful place. And I think that foster care and adoption, you know, the beauty might not be sitting out in front of you, obvious, but you have to squint sometimes to see it and to celebrate it. But nevertheless, I think it's present on the path and it seems like fours might be able to, to, to celebrate that, to see that, to feel that, Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, to feel it without having to fix it. I mean, that's just kind of a foreign, foreign feeling to me. Sure. Me too. Me too. Uh, fives. You know, with my dear husband, Luke, who I love and adore, I know that he values his independence more than anything. And he really looks at situations through a very almost technical lens of deposits and withdrawals of his energy. And so in our specific case, for example, with my precious Charlie, there is a higher percentage. And I want to be so clear that there are so many kids in foster care and in adoptive situations that have not one speck of in utero substance abuse, anything, but I'm speaking from my own experience here that, um, you know, statistically kids in foster care are exponentially higher, uh, to higher, more likely to be exposed. Um, and so 
in our case, what this has meant is that we said yes to a baby for 48 hours for the weekend. And really what we were saying yes to is a lifetime of intense interdependence Mm -hmm. that our son will need, um, interdependence. And so I, I honestly marvel at my husband. He is a rock star and I could, I could get emotional talking about him because he just, he just sees what needs to be done in the fall Our the, the school, um, was not able to meet Charlie's needs. They were not creative. And despite us coming in and trying to be collaborative, um, their, their solution to his dysregulation was to physically restrain him. And as we saw his self-esteem plummet daily, multiple times, you know, getting calls at 9am to come and pick him up. My husband and I sat down and just very unemotionally, he, he said, I think I need a different job because I think we need to homeschool our child. And just the amount to like pivot after a career that he spent 25 years of his life in that he got a PhD in to pivot, to, to have the ability to, to pivot, to, to teach Charlie at home. Um, it, it astounds me because Charlie is a kid that is going to, and I say this in the most loving of ways, kind of picket you to death. Dad, I want to go gold mining. I want to go gold mining right now. Can we go to the river, Dad? Oh, there's sports down the road. Can we, you know, it's just constant, constant barrage of like, I need you. I want you. You're my person. Respond to me. And so I I think life looks different for Luke than if we didn't have the privilege of parenting Charlie. But I think he he tries to keep his reserves um, so that he can hold on to the amount of independence that he can so that he can then have that withdrawal that is daily taken out of him. Um, so the next right thing, just doing the next right thing. Yeah. Yeah. Sixes. Um, I heard you say Suzanne, that sixes are the number that's most concerned with the common good. And I think when we go back to this, the starting point of this, you know, um, it's, it's a direct overt connection to, to, you know, hearing about why children are in foster care and how, how we can help. Um, the reality is kids in foster care, their world has not been safe and not been secure. And so I think sixes can have an awful lot to, to worry about. Not the least of which is the fact that kind of your future is in the, is out, out of your control. Mm -hmm. And in a sense, it is for all of us, but you know what I mean? In terms of like, this is my family and I'm making these plans. Now you have, you know, like we talked about the seven other people attached to that child that are also weighing in on that. And so um, but you could also have seven people attached to one of your children at some point. It has to do, I think, with the illusion that we're in control somehow. And I think when six is self-doubt, they lean into, oh, but wait, I can control this and this mm-hmm. and this. And yeah, not so much. Not so much. Yeah. Yeah. For sevens, Joel, I feel like you should just like take over right now as a seven for foster parenting. What do you think would be the the like pitfalls and the opportunities? I know from a personal experience, you know, as we were blending families and I had two girls and Whitney had a boy who's, man, I feel like he was like three at the time. Yeah, yeah he was three, six years ago. And I was like, fantastic. Got a son. Bam. And. I don't know. You got this idea that he's going to want to do the stuff that you want to do and get along like, and it's not that it was, uh, yeah, we are nothing alike. By the way, I don't act like your girls do. And now here, and here I am three-year-olds don't change their personality to, mm-hmm. to match yours. So that's, mm-hmm. that was a super, super unrealistic expectation I had. Hmm. Well, I and then feel you like had another girl <laughs> and then we probably, yeah, another girl. And yeah. she, she went ahead and love it. Um, yeah, made life hard too. So. You know, I think, I think sevens may feel really tied down sometimes by the rigidity at times that, for example, in our family, we, we have to, I don't feel like I'm a very like rigid person, but because Charlie can get so dysregulated, we have to kind of really tone it down. Like, a lot of things aren't fun. A lot of things aren't shiny. There's not a lot of imagination and, and just the structure. And a lot of kids in foster care need a high level of structure. But that being said, of course, we can like imagine the possibilities. And, you know, I feel like sevens make the world just a more happy, wonderful place. Um, well, I am the child in that situation. So I think that's why I didn't say that. 
because I, <laughs> I do buck the rigidity. So, all right. I, I hear what you're saying now. I feel attacked. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I just, I think it might kind of stifle that, that sense of like possibility, you yeah. know, like yeah. by having to be so rigid. That's what I meant by that, Joel. Yeah. So limitations. Well, if you do want one example of that. Bring it. In this, just as a seven parent and everything that you just said. Uh, Jolie spends a night with her friends for her friend's birthday. They come drop her back off. There's three girls. Jolie's showing her the new house. They come out. All three of them come to the front door while we're talking to the parents. And they're like, hey, can they stay over and swim? Jolie's husband's like, yeah, I don't care. Yeah, sure. Stay over and swim. And every other parent was like, no. <laughs> no. Whitney was like, I'm not. She's shaking her head in the background. And I caught her after I had started being like, I don't care. Yeah, sure. Yeah. But that's the. Uh, that's it. Yeah. Yeah, they've just been together and they haven't had any sleep and you want them to swim. Well, do whatever you Yeah. You know, I yeah. My, I exactly. my, you know what though, Joel? There's a there's an aspect of that though, and I, I know we are down to our last couple of minutes, but I can relate to that because I think sometimes when we consider the family environment, I know I've been talking a lot about my youngest child and in a lot of ways that's appropriate because he's our child that if we are not careful, we'll kind of suck up all the attention pie, you know, eat up all the attention pie, like the attention pie in our family is not sliced evenly. And so I feel that same kind of like, yeah, whatever, do it, go have fun as a way to kind of create some equilibrium for all the hard that my other three kids experience underneath the, the roof of my home. I have definitely leaned into the like, yeah, it, you can go to the movies at nine o'clock at night when school's the next day. Like, sure, do it. You know, so I feel like that it's been good. It's good for me because I'm not naturally kind of, oh, whatever. But I feel like that's been another inverted gift to Charlie is that it stretched me to to just to just know that for the sake of harmony in our household and, and striving to get a little bit of equilibrium that I've had to be a lot more fun and kind of imagine the possibility in last minute. Like I hear you say, yeah. For know your number, people. If you if you can't justify having the fun, then you're not a seven. Just <laughs> move on it. to another That's number. That's it. It's not true. That's right. Oh, not gosh, true. you know, with eights caring about justice and fairness and equity, I just feel like that's such a natural alignment. Of course, with foster care, kind of fighting for the underdog, all of those things. But I also think, you know, again back to working and engaging with a, with an overwhelmed state system, there are a lot of policies and procedures that are in place that are not always going to feel fair. And so I feel like, um, I don't know. I just, I feel, I feel like that the opportunity is there to, you know, be powerful for people that need you. But I also think eights might feel weak at times because they really are not in the position of power. They're not in the driving seat. When you sign up to be a foster parent, you are signing up to say, this child is the ward of the state. The state of Oregon is the responsible parent for this child. I'm going to be the wing from the state of Oregon, but ultimately it's not my call. I don't get a say in court. I don't get to talk to the judge directly. It's all through this other person that's representing this child, you know, and representing this agency that I'm with. So that can be real tricky. Very tricky. Very tricky. Does this seem like an, kind of like the one with an eight? the importance of understanding how many people are a part of this yep. that you're not in control of. Right. You can't be like, well, this should be done this way. Right. Like taking on all those different wings and aspects and persons and governments. And yeah, mm -hmm. I could, what, while you were talking, I could just see an eight saying now, now wait a minute, you're going to go represent what's happening in my house with the child that I'm responsible for. Right. Yeah. And then the lawyer comes around, and you're like, well, lawyer, I'm going to need a different lawyer because it's that's absolutely yeah. that's absolutely a reality because and that's a tension many foster parents feel. It's like I am raising this child with everything in my being for 24 seven. You are coming for 30 minutes every 30 days and you're the one that gets a voice. So it can get real tangly really quickly. Yeah. Um, nine, you know, for, for nines, I feel like in foster parenting in particular, you know, I think nines need to, to know that they can't always take kind of the path of the least resistance. Um, but I, I think what's so beautiful about a nine potentially stepping into, you know, working with vulnerable children is that nines are tolerant and can kind of have like an anything goes peaceful vibe, which can actually serve you very well as a foster and adoptive parent. Mm -hmm. Nines are very good at going with the flow, whatever the flow is, they can go. Something that I've heard you say about nines and other nines talk about, let's just say 10 years has gone by of just going with the flow and so on. 
but then year 11 could be where the speed bump is for, for nines in, in this scenario and in this circumstance of one day they wake up and they're like, I, you know, 10 years, 10 years of doing this. And Mm -hmm. I, you know, I'm Mm -hmm. tired. I, I, I do think nines get tired and then they don't have the resources to draw on because they're not accustomed to needing them. Because they didn't do it for the first 10 years. That's right. That's, that's it exactly. That's it exactly. Um, <clears throat> a couple of things I want to say before we, and then I want to ask you the question I ask everybody. But one of the things I want to do, first of all, is to thank you for your honesty and for your integrity. Because I believe that when people hear what fostering is really like, they feel like they're treated with the amount of respect that would be required for them to consider fostering. Mm. And you um, don't manipulate. So thank you for being that voice. I'm very taken more and more the more I know with the title of your book that is just released, A Love Stretched Life, because you guys seem to be able to keep stretching yours. Like you, you've done a lot of stretching to love and keep loving and handle and keep handling. Do you feel like you, you've kind of, if, if you stretch any farther, there's not much elasticity there? Like of, I might snap in other words. <laughs> yeah, well, I was trying not to say that. <laughs> the follow-up to her memoir, I love snap. Right, exactly. Exactly. Um, so your question is, do you, do I feel like I have room to stretch more? Is yeah. that what you're asking? Yep. To be honest, Suzanne, I feel like I'm at capacity. Yeah. I feel like with three parenting, three teenagers, having our oldest who is still, uh, still engaging the fallout of what it means to have a felony on your record and to have been homeless and to be dealing with addiction. And then to have our youngest, uh, be neurodivergent. I I'm, I'm stretched. I'm stretched. And I think one of my most important things in writing this book was not to present a story of overcoming, Mm -hmm. but to be honest about a picture of like, we are constantly walking the suspension bridge daily between hope and reality. Mm -hmm. And in the middle, it can get real blurry, but I feel like, I just feel like I'm, I'm getting more comfortable with walking the bridge Mm -hmm. and not having to not, not needing to be needed in the midst of walking the bridge. Well, and I think orientation of time would be helpful with that because if your orientation of time was the past or the future, I do think your journey would be different than it is because you're just doing what's right in front of you. There's so much right in front of you. It's like a, that's a full load. It seems. I've been asking everybody uh, who comes on the podcast for a while. I'll probably change the question pretty soon. But my question for a while has been, what are you curious about? I know how to answer that. I feel like I have been really late to the game, Suzanne, with recognizing um, this, this sounds this sounds almost silly, but just recognizing that I'm a finite being that was created with fight or flight, that that primary and secondary trauma can actually apply to me too. And that if I'm not listening and paying attention, if I'm ramming myself past that intersection all the time of, um, you know, uh, uh, of need, then my body's going to keep the score. I love that book. The body keeps the score. And I feel like I am increasingly curious about how our, how, what we experience is stored in our body. Mm -hmm. And I think for years, I discounted even the foundational pillar of sleep, for example, because I didn't get it that much. And, but as I get older, I just feel like, I feel like a little bit more of like a gentle acceptance as well as a very intense curiosity about like, how is my experience of the world? How is my love stretch life manifesting in my very physical body? Yeah. It's not mine to do to write a book about what I'm about to talk about briefly, but I, if, if, if I had the, the time, the energy and more deeper understanding at 71 I would say not only does your body keep score but your body pays the price too yes 
Exactly. And you don't know the price until you age and you can't go back and do it different. Yeah. Yeah. It's tricky because we feel like we have enough in us to love and care for everybody who's, Mm -hmm. who's presenting to us. Mm -hmm. And we absolutely do not. We have Mm -hmm. to have some boundaries. Yeah. Well, um, I can't think of a time when we've had somebody offer so much in such a short amount of time. So thank you for all the preparation you did for uh, being on the podcast. I'm really grateful that you were ready to run the numbers um, because I think it'll be uh, much more appropriate to the context and to the topic. And uh, on behalf of all the people who don't know to thank you and Luke, thank you for what you're doing to care for the children who are vulnerable. Thank you. And thank you, Suzanne, for making yourself available with your vast wisdom so that those of us, you know, learning the journey, there's so many bumpy parts, but I feel like you kind of flatten the hurdle of like at least understanding ourselves as we like come to the table and try to do our best by vulnerable children. It's just been so key in my life and in Luke's life. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you.